we continue to look at 1 Peter as God's grace at work. And there's some verses in our passage here this morning that kind of uh, really keyed me in on this as a theme for our time in 1 Peter over these weeks. And today we look at God's grace at work when you suffer at work. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, interesting, a lot of uh, cynical things that can be said about our jobs or, or situations that we face. And, and, and th- these, these situations could apply to, to not just um, those that we work with. It can be applied to, to the teams we play on, the coaches we play under, or the relationships that we're even in that we maybe, maybe we don't have a choice of being in with family or or um, as we'll see next week, they can apply to marriage as well. Um, I, I was reading uh, the, the comic strip Blondie this past week. And I'm not sure why they call it Blondie because it's all about Dagwood. But um, Dagwood comes home from work and he's really discouraged and concerned. And, and, and um, he says, you know, the boss is talking about renting out unused space in the office. And Blondie's like, well, I'm not sure that's such a big deal. That happens a lot of times. And he says, yeah, but he mentioned half of my desk could be rented to someone. I guess he was, he wasn't, uh, he was accusing Dagwood once again of not working enough, putting a little uh, pressure on him there. Uh, there's, a, there's a new uh, understanding of vacation time in the workplace, and, and that's not just the vacation time that you might get, but it's also your boss's vacation time. Because when the boss is away, it's vacation time uh, there in the office. We have these tendencies in our culture to kind of get a little cynical and and look at uh, our superiors as as, um, being sometimes the source of our woes. Just because somebody takes on a supervising role doesn't mean their vision gets any better. There's no supervision that comes along with it. Sometimes it can feel like it gets a little worse. But I, I, I encourage you again that if you get paid to go somewhere or get paid for the work that you do, if it was everything you dreamed it would be, you'd probably be paying them to be there. They'd put a big sign over and call it an amusement park. That there's a reason why we get paid to do work. It's because we might not choose to be there otherwise. But we look this morning at, at God's grace at work even when you suffer. At work. And again, this could apply to a coach that you're playing under. It could apply to a family relationship that you might not be able to get away from because we can't do that always. It might apply to another commitment that you've made of submitting yourself to a situation. And the whole theme idea of these verses in 1 Peter 2 and 3 that we've looked at is is. Um, God, to, to fall in line with God's design for submission. And it comes from the first statement made in verse 13, which really applies to several situations that Peter goes into. But he says in this statement, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. You might, might remember that to be subject is made up of, of two parts of the word. To ject means to throw. Okay, to project means to throw forward. To inject means to throw in. To, to uh, eject means to throw out. To subject means to throw under. And when we're told, be subject, it's passive. Be thrown under. 
for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And this is talking about any sort of organization or, or institution that we have committed to or that we find ourselves serving in, in which there is a superior over us. And, and uh, Peter goes into three human institutions. The first we looked at last week being government. This week we look at employment or, or um, uh, commitments in which we're working under a superior. And next week we look at marriage as Peter does. But this week we look at verses 18 through 23, which Peter writes, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now the servants being referred to here, to this um, refers to the slavery uh, system that was going on in the Roman Empire during the New Testament times is very different than what we have known in our present day, sadly, around the world, as well as what uh, we are, might be familiar with from the 1800s and forward in our country. The servants of this day, specifically the ones that, that Peter is referring to, would have been household servants, there were laws in the Roman Empire for the treatment of servants and their involvement in the family life. Um, there was different levels of the servant class, but as I mentioned, this is referring mostly to that household servant relationship, and a good percentage of the early church was made up of this social class. In fact, some of them worshiping alongside of their, their master. Economically, the, the household servant was far better off than the day laborer, even though they would have been considered free. And in fact, the household servant was usually paid, and they would be able to uh, purchase their freedom uh, from the home. And many times the freedman, as they would call him, would, would continue to work alongside of the family, uh, continuing to be paid um, and with greater liberty and such. These masters... Uh, many of them, as I said, some servants might uh, be believers in Christ alongside of their masters, but, but many of the masters that these believing servants served for were still uh, pagan, pagan worshipers of the emperor, as was expected in the Roman Empire. They would have had family worship times of their pagan um, uh, beliefs, and these servants would have been pressured to participate in the family worship. And, and you can imagine uh, one uh, neighbor saying to the other, hey, I hear your servant doesn't worship the emperor anymore. Uh, you going to let that happen in your house? So it was, it was common for there to be an, an additional pressure coming on a believer after they came to Christ and were still serving in a home. And there was questions for New Testament followers of Christ how has Christ changed my status? How, how does now that I'm a follower of Christ, especially if, if my boss is also a follower of Christ, how does that change our relationship and such? Now, one writer says, newly, some newly converted slaves thought that their spiritual freedom also guaranteed personal and political freedom, and they created problems for themselves and the churches. So this is kind of the scenario that Peter is writing into. And he continues in verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure? 
But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is the greatest challenge, I think, in call, the calling the follower of Christ because we're called to follow the suffering servant. There's a lot of terms that come up in this, um, these verses, this passage, that uh, reference back to Isaiah 53, which is a prediction of Christ our Messiah as the suffering servant, the suffering Messiah that we are called to follow. And Peter continues, he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Keep in mind here, guys, this is suffering that Peter himself is giving an eyewitness report to. He was sitting there in that courtyard of the high priest when Jesus was beaten and mocked and abused. It was was without him committing sin, his actions, in his actions or in his words, without omitting obedience. He trusted his father to judge justly. And Peter saw it all. And he gives that account to us here. So from these words to us about our employment relationships, because that's really where this applies today. I want you to see that we are to serve. You are to serve your boss with respect. And again, this could apply to the coach that you're playing under. It could apply to the organization that you've decided to be a part of. It's really referring to a relationship that we are in in which someone is, quote-unquote, our superior. But Peter wrote, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. We're not to reject human institutions or eject from them, but we are to subject, be subject, be thrown under them, to be in submission to come under the mission of another. We're, and this is, we're called to do this with all respect. Now, this is not as, as, as strong as fear of punishment or harm. It's, it's a healthy desire to avoid the superior's displeasure. And this is to be for the glory of God, for the glory of Christ. Even the unjust bosses are to be submitted with all respect. And when they're called unjust, the term here is scolios. Scolios. We get the term scoliosis from this, which refers to a curvature, a bend in the spine. These are, they're literally called curved or bent, even crooked bosses. Dave Willis has said, show respect even to people that don't deserve it, not as a reflection of their character, but as a reflection of yours. You know, uh, my kids can attest to this, that, that when they were younger, if they were to complain about teachers or coaches or something like that, I'd be like, uh-uh, no, no, no. We don't complain about your authority here in this house. I don't know what it is. I've got, gotten older or maybe, you know, that my kids are getting older. It's like, can't they see that this fine young man or this fine young lady that they're dealing with here, 
but I'm the one that has the problem. I'm like, why did the coach do that? Or why is the teacher doing this? And I'm like catching myself, and this has been very convicting for me, that this is something that it's not about somebody deserving. It's about Christ deserving our following him through it. Be subject with all respect. When frustrated, when they're not around, when you don't think it matters. It's not about me. It's not about my kids. It's about Christ. It's about honoring him. It's about Jesus. As we're reminded in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live. But Jesus Christ lives in me. That's what it means back in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake. And rising above scraping for control of life as if it belongs to us. We're called to see God's grace at work. And these verses here are really, like I said, some of the verses that shaped for me why this this first Peter for us is that theme of God's grace at work in us in all circumstances. But specifically, we're talking about where we're at work. He says, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Then he asks the question, how would it be special if, when he says, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? In other words, you don't lash back. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing. He says that twice. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. He introduces his section with four, kind of like, I'm going to explain it here. As one writer says, the Bible... Uh, In the Bible, duty is always uh, connected with doctrine. And he's explaining our duty here. And and he says, it pleases God when we trust him in the midst of unjust suffering. We're actually imitating the, the example of Christ. And I love that statement. This is a gracious thing. Saying it twice. We've talked about how grace is getting the good things that we don't deserve from God or from others. But this scenario seems like we're getting something bad that we don't deserve. Something we don't want. We've talked about how grace, it could be an acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. His payment, meaning our benefit. But this this scenario seems to be describing us tasting some of Christ's sufferings. What's this have to do with grace? Well, grace can be described also as God's unmerited favor, that favor from him that we don't deserve. I see that it's a gracious thing, kind of like when we would describe situations as a God thing. Like just like he's all over it. And, and we're described, this situation is described as grace is all over it. I think we can we are seeing evidence. It's it's a grace thing when we see evidence of God's favor having changed us. So that now in this circumstance, we actually are moved to respond in a godly way, obeying Christ. I think it can be a grace thing when we're receiving grace in that moment. 
rather than obeying our fleshly desire to lash out or to say, hey, I don't deserve that. It can be a grace time, a grace thing where when in real time, it's an example to us of of the new life that we are experiencing as promised in Christ. It's not natural to respond in this way. It's it's a grace thing. As we'll read about in 1 Peter 2.24, we're seeing the evidence that the Holy Spirit is indwelling us and changing us. Where we're told, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. I think it's a gracious thing for us to be able to see God's grace having caused us to live to righteousness. To to see, wow, He is at work in my life. And it's a gracious thing when He gives us that grace in that moment to move a little further, dying to ourselves and living to righteousness. And in order to be able to experience God's grace in these moments, be mindful of God's all-seeing presence. He says, for it's a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. This isn't, this isn't about remembering that God's going to get you if you don't obey. It's an awareness of God's more important plan that should inspire us. And speaking of this motivation for self-denial of our rights, Wayne Grudem says this, it's not a stoic, self-motivating tenacity which holds out against all opposition, but rather the opposite, the trusting awareness of God's presence and never-failing care, which is the key to righteous suffering. It is the confidence that God will ultimately right all wrongs, which enables a Christian to submit to an unjust master without resentment, rebelliousness, self-pity, or despair. That's a grace thing. That's like a miraculous grace thing. But, But that's what God intends to do in us, to change us in that way. Like I said, it's not that we should fear how God might respond to us. This is just as we should do our best, not simply out of fear of punishment. It's about what, what brings God glory from an unusual submission to mistreatment. But this encouragement assumes that God has already changed our motivation. And I challenge you in light of that, commit to what's right in God's sight. If you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. No boss has the right to define what is morally right and wrong for us. And this can come into play. You shouldn't obey your boss if the expectation is for you to go out and have a few too many drinks with the team. You shouldn't obey your boss. If it comes down to breaking copyright or other ethical boundaries, you shouldn't obey your boss. If it comes down to fudging numbers. And when you don't obey in those situations, and, and you might, uh, what you, they might see as punishment for not going along with their rules, their expectations, we are encouraged to see it as nothing compared to allowing God to set the rules. 
See God's grace at work. Work from his guidance. You know, uh, Kelly and I have enjoyed um, going down in Park County and we've taken family to do this at different times of, of going down and seeing the covered bridges in Park County. Not during the bridge festival, right? But you know, they've got those little arrows on a lot of the telephone poles and on people's property that if you want to see the yellow trail, you can follow the yellow arrows or the red trail or whichever and, and see the different ones. You can, you can follow the arrows or you can follow a map. Well, what if some of those property owners were like, you know what, that arrow's on my property. So I have a right to do with it whatever I want. So yeah, it's, it's saying go left, but I'm going to turn it, tell, tell it to go right. You know what it's saying to go forward? I'm going to turn it, tell it to go left. I mean, it'd be kind of pointless then to even have them there. It, the wiser thing would be to follow the map. Guys, that's the, the, the situation of moral relativism that we live in and, and as it applies to, to the workplace. Sometimes your supervisor, sometimes your superior is thinking, you know what, I don't care what you think is right or wrong. This is what's right and wrong where I am in charge. I get to direct it wherever I think it should be. And they're thinking, that's my right. And folks, our map is far better than the standards of the workplace or the threats of a boss. We have God's guidance. We, we have the scriptures. We have his Holy Spirit, like a GPS, to guide us in real time. And our goal should be to see God's work at work in our lives. And at our work. And this comes through obeying him. This doesn't come through following the impulses. The impulsive threats of a boss. If he's telling us to disobey. In the sight of God. But when we put up with it. If it doesn't mean disobeying God. Obeying God and at the same time honoring the man. This is a grace thing. We must have his standard of success in mind. And that standard is conformity to the suffering servant. Conformity to Christ. And I want to challenge you here. Surrender your calling to imitate. Surrender to your calling to imitate. And that be to imitate Christ. You can read, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's not a calling that they were all, all, all that interested in following. You know, Peter deals with our calling in several different places in his letter here. But here he's reminding us of our calling to suffer with Christ. If you have a hard time getting your mind around the idea that Christ was called to suffer, you're in good company. If you remember from, uh, from our study through the transformation of the Apostle Peter, he opposed Christ to his face when Christ would predict that he was going to be going to the cross and dying. He, he told him, this will never happen to you. 
He, he fought off the men that came to arrest Christ. And now here we see him saying, be prepared to suffer with him. It's a gracious thing when you do. Suffering is a common theme for God's people throughout the scriptures. Psalm 34, 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Jesus told us in John 15, 20, Remember in this, the, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In John 16, 33, he says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In Acts 14, 22, Paul was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 3, Paul speaks of how he hoped that none of them, none of them would be moved by these afflictions. And he says, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. And in 2 Timothy 3.12, you can read, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Warren Wearsby said, There's a shallow brand of popular theology today that claims that Christians will not suffer if they are in the will of God. Those who promote such ideas have not meditated much on the cross. Remember that cross, guys? What we're called to take up daily and follow Christ with. One way that we can better receive unjust suffering as our calling in this life, is to recall the perfect example of Jesus. He didn't deserve it. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. He told the truth. Even standing before the Jewish council, even standing before Pilate. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. One writer says, this verse provides noteworthy testimony to the complete sinlessness of Jesus by one who had been on the closest terms of intimacy with him. Peter saw Jesus being reviled. He saw him suffering. He saw him do what was right. Trust in God amidst all of it. It also helps to, to, in the situations where we think, what did I do to deserve this, God? Is this what I get for obeying you? If it makes us more like Christ, it's a blessing. For me, there's always that verse that reminds me to buck up. And it's Hebrews 12, 3 through 4. Consider him, speaking about Jesus, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That's to me, buck up, J.D. And there's growth involved in it. If you'll go through it in a way that's seeking to follow Christ, 
to trust God, to set aside what you want from it. Ultimately, I think our battle is more against our flesh than others' unrighteousness. I think that when, the, when we're walking by the Spirit, we'll submit to God's purposes. And I think we'll value the experience of participation in Christ's sufferings. And we can also learn from Christ and trust God for justice. It says he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This term entrusting, it literally means handing himself over. Handing himself over. And the tense is imperfect. He kept, he continued over and over again, handing himself over to the Father who judges justly. And this is what it takes to be a living sacrifice that we're called to be, to continually hand ourselves over to God for what He and His will can accomplish. It feels like a 300-pound weight that we, need to, that we need to lift. But you know how you get to where you can lift a 300-pound weight? By lifting a 3-pound weight and lifting a 30-pound weight. It's in submitting to the Lord. It's in wanting what He wants for you in the small things, in everything that we're prepared in those times when when we are like, what is going on, God? That we're better prepared to stop and say, wait, it's not about me. It's not that you're out of control. I'm out of control. So what's new? My agenda is not at the top of yours. So what's new? But your best is best for me. Don't expect to be about to start to handing over the really hard sufferings to God on a whim. Be ready to repeatedly hand over the really hard stuff by repeatedly handing over everything to Him. Start with your complaint. Start with what you complain about. Just because you're making conversation. What you vent about. Wayne Grudem said something profound here. He says, it's important to note that Peter here commends neither the supposed therapeutic value of expressing one's anger when wronged, nor merely holding the anger in and trying to suppress it. Both are self-dependent solutions or flesh-driven But rather, this is what Peter recommends, repeatedly and continually committing the situation into God's hands. We're told in Ephesians, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Because that gives the devil, God's enemy, a foothold in our lives. You know, that's an indication to me that when I'm upset, don't go to bed with it. To talk to God about it. To bring it to Him. To trust Him with it. To to repeat the fact that, God, You are just. You judge justly. You are in this. This is not out of Your control. You love me. You want me to be more like Christ. You can make me that through this. I trust You. I give this to You. That's what it looks like. Surrender Your calling to imitate Surrender to your calling to imitate Christ. 
When he says, and it's the verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. This term uh, for example, it's, it's really interesting. The term means to trace it out. You know, like when you were a kid and you saw like a really neat picture in a magazine and, and, or in a newspaper and you're like, I want to draw that. You might have some tracing paper, which is like thin paper that when you press it on the picture, you could draw out that picture. That's the term kind of being used here, to trace it out. Like Jesus is our example. And our goal when we wake up in the morning, the more we grow, the more we'll realize this, is to take our lives and put it on Jesus. Say, Lord, whatever I walk through today, let, me, let my life be just tracing out the example that Jesus has given me to live. Because guys, the fact is this, it's about Jesus. And this is why I love this statement so much. It's about Jesus, but it's also about us with him, walking in relationship. It's about Jesus and us together. And there's a purpose to it. It's about Jesus and us. It's about Jesus and you on gospel mission. In that work, on that team, in that family relationship, in that com- on that committee that you're a part of, in that neighborhood program that you're a part of. It's about Him. And it's about you together being on gospel mission in those situations. And guys, the fact is, is it's such an awesome thing that, that, that our ticket's been fully punched for a relationship with God because Jesus paid the way. Jesus allowed his body to be broken, allowed his blood to be poured out and rose from the dead so that we could experience resurrection life now. And sometimes it takes suffering to hammer that out. Most of the times it takes suffering to hammer that out. And I want to read for you because we're, we're going to close our time in celebrating communion. And I want to read from you from 1 Peter 2, 24 through 25. <clears throat> we're going to look at this in two weeks. We're going to come back to it. But this is the in-depth description of Jesus' sufferings that Peter goes into next. And, you know, I believe that part of this, as Peter references back to the setting in which he had denied Christ and he is sitting there in that courtyard watching Jesus suffer, watching him be insulted, watching him be threatened, and not insulting back, not threatening back, And I think that Peter puts it back into perspective here. There was a reason for it. There was a plan for it. I didn't see it then. But here is what it was. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. God has given us something special 
in communion. He's given us the opportunity to return back to the shepherd of our souls. To return back and say, Lord, why do I have this relationship with you? Why, why, do I, why do you see me in the righteousness of Christ, even with all of the mistakes that I make, even with all of the dumb things that I do, even with all the ways that I sin against you? And the reminder is, it's because that on that night, Jesus poured out his He poured out his blood. He broke his body in the same way that he said, this is my body broken for you. Told us to celebrate it in remembrance of him. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. We're given that opportunity to come back What is all this about, Lord? And if you have a a relationship with God, you've received Christ as your Savior, and you recognize that a relationship with Him is not about anything that you've done to earn it, but it's all about of who Christ is and what He's done, you are welcome to take from one of these tables and to celebrate communion with us here this morning. I'm going to ask Dan to come up. He's going to lead us in some singing. And during that time, as you see fit, I want you and your family, or just yourself, or a friend, feel free to visit one of these two tables in the back or the one in front. And remember that Christ suffered a lot. But he did so not to keep us from suffering. He did so that there could be purpose in our suffering an eternal purpose, a purpose to our eternal relationship with God, to everything that God allows us to go through. It all took on meaning in the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Let's bow our heads.